think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 33 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 34th episode. Uh, I'm Laurent Carbonell. I'm Ethan Renville. And uh, this week we have, uh, probably be our last episode before the holidays. Uh, we'll see. That's, we'll see. Pe- that's pessimistic. That is pessimistic, but you know, it's a, it's a worst case scenario kind of world. Dumbest timeline and all that. Um, so I want to talk, we want to start off this week talking about uh, this bizarre trip to China, China that sort of took on the parameters of uh, a... Um, Curb Your Enthusiasm episode in some respects. Just a sort of human comedy of errors. Uh, so, Chan, do you want to lead us off on what the stakes were here and kind of what happened? So, I mean, on in sort of the build-up, the government had been... Uh, the build-up to the China. China trip. The government had sort of been hinting that a free... The kickoff of negotiations with China, China. on free trade was yeah. underway. Or was going to be announced... Um, at some point during the PM's China trip. And that seemed to be really the reason for the PM flying all the way to China. China yeah, because his time is valuable. You know, his when time, he's in China, he's not any other number of places. His so. time is very valuable. And beyond the free trade, um, I guess, negotiations, call it, call it what you will, um, the, he went to like a business conference and he met a couple stakeholders... There wasn't anything else really notable. Just, I'm always shocked that he finds all these Chinese billionaires that are really concerned about the Canadian <laughs> middle class. That's what blows my mind every time. <gasps> Fair enough. Um, so he flew to China. Um, he sat down with one or two fairly senior officials at, at different points. And they had a very rocky ride. Um, the PM's uh, photographer, Scotty, was not allowed into the photo op with the, I believe, Premier. I could have that wrong. That is correct. Uh, With the Premier, the Canadian press pool was iced out. The Canadian photos you saw were, you know, over people's shoulders and from a distance, which is really, really unusual because usually the logistics of this sort of thing are hammered down well, well, well in advance. And uh, leaders' tours are very well-oiled machines. One has to wonder if the result of the press conference in terms of the substance of what was announced has anything to do with how brusque the Canadian press corps was treated. Bruskly, rather. Um, So there's some interesting... Uh, there was an interesting article that came out in one of the Chinese uh, sort of state papers um, that was highly critical of the Canadian press. Mm-hmm. And so towards the second half of the trip, uh, sort of the press angle picked up a little more steam and Trudeau was speaking a little more defensively in his questions about the press because the Chinese state media was being openly critical of Canadian media. Um, there's a really good quote in the article about so the whole intent of the free trade agreement Trudeau's push on it has been to put or continue uh, pushing quote unquote progressive values uh, via th- yeah. via free trade particularly labor standards yes and so this was sort of how they respun um, CETA they said we made it more progressive i.e. now it's perfect um, they renamed the TPP to be the Comprehensive Progressive yes. or something like this. Just throw on some more P's, that'll do it. Um, so now it's like the CPTPP, which is quite the mouthful and Indeed. was completely unnecessary. That was Canada's so, contribution. So just, just before we get deeper into this, I feel like we've kind of buried the lead here, which is to say that Canada and China will not be beginning negotiations on a free trade agreement. Correct. We're still in the pre... Yeah. The pre-negotiation phase where there's ongoing discussion. Yeah, so at this press conference where everyone... We'll, we'll get back to sort of the, the broader context, but I just want to tell everyone kind of what actually happened first, which is at this press conference that we kind of discussed earlier, where, you know, all these uh, all this Chinese media was, where all this Canadian media was kind of frozen out of, uh, the expectation was that the announcement would be on the beginnings of a trade agreement with China. Correct. And instead... We got this one where they said, we are not moving forward with this at this time. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for coming out, everyone. Thanks for coming out. Let me read you a quote from uh, the Global Times. It's a Chinese-English language newspaper, so very clear in the English language who the target audience is, a little more foreign-looking than domestic. And it says, and it, it's generally a piece bashing uh, Canadian media, and uh, the best quote in it is perhaps when China imports a pair of sh- or when Canada imports a pair of shoes from China, 
Will Canada ask how much democracy and human rights are reflected in those shoes? It would be absurd. It would be as absurd as China questioning the capitalist nature of every single good imported from China. Man, I think we should be doing both those things. <laughs> Personally, I think that would actually be very good. There was too much capitalism in my shoes. I, th- I think assessing the capitalism and democracy of our purchases is actually not a terrible idea. I mean, China's asserting that it should be doing the opposite, though. It should be saying it should be looking it for would, more communism well, in it, its shoes. It be, it's saying that to do both is absurd, or to do either is absurd, really. But I think we should be doing both. Um, anyway, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what this would actually mean had it been successful? I mean, neither of us are, are international trade experts, but you know, we we've both been around I around actually, the trade block. I actually got my degree in international trade law from ITT Technical Institute last week. Indeed. Um, Uh, So, the China trade agreement, sort of, you have to remember it in the context of the ongoing, the other ongoing trade agreements, um, it was largely seen by advocates as a refutation of uh, Donald Trump, his agenda, and as Canada sort of a reproachment and lessening the need for NAFTA. Yeah. Saying, you know, there's other kids in the park we can play with, we don't have to play with you. Yeah. Um, Which was also sort of the idea of TPP. But now we're well, sitting TPP, in a world with that. Well, it was originally yeah, about icing okay. out China, but yes. the new TPP uh, renegotiations again were about broadening Canada's trade market, and we're not. We've goofed up twice by the looks of it here. Well, yeah, because we had that awkward episode in uh, with the Australia ja- or wherever it was with the Japanese. Uh, yeah. it definitely was not in Australia. Uh, I think it was at the. Uh, Doesn't matter. ASEAN. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. ASEAN conference yeah. Um, with the Japanese, and we looked dumb then, and we look even dumber now, and certainly people, you know, Trump's team of trade advisors are watching this and saying, are watching this and saying, like, this certainly we, or are saying, you know, Canada can't negotiate with anyone. They are putting themselves in a weaker position by attempting to negotiate and failing to negotiate with what should be easy partners. Yeah. Um, so we looked dumb um, in the we looked dumb theme, and particularly from the staffer perspective, there's a good anecdote in one of the pieces talking about uh, Champagne staffers basically grabbing, being on the plane with the media, grabbing their stuff and running off the plane to stay in China, and I can presume loiter outside the airport looking for someone to negotiate with. Yes. Like, it, it all seemed very... Uh, let's say ham-fisted in terms of, especially with uh, Chinese governments as a culture. Yeah. Um, very. Well, and like as a broader context too, is that this came at the same time as you know, there's a lot of coverage in the news on an imprisoned Chinese Canadian businessman in China, um, that you know his health was like seriously deteriorating in Chinese prison, and raised concerns about you know human rights in China and the ease of doing business there. Um, I mean, personally, I think you talk about the advantages, disadvantages of trade with China. I think it's a very unequal power relationship in the sense that but China can is a much bigger actor and can kind of impose rules as it wants to, you know, sort of in spite of the whatever agreement you can reach. Which, which is certainly fair. Um, there's there's that. There's also compliance with the rules. That's precisely what I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas that, with the United gonna... States, you have an actor that's yes. you know you can negotiate with a little more in good faith. The rule of law means a little more there um, than it does in China. So, I mean, on the conservative side of the spectrum, you see a lot of people who are very skeptical of China. Yeah. Um, on the liberal side, you see a lot of people who. Uh, like China, Trudeau's had a big push towards China, and see engaging with China as a way to uh, use soft power and push for, you know, human rights and things yeah. along those lines. I don't know what sort of the tendency on the left. I mean, it, I think it's is. quite skeptical of a free trade agreement with China, just on the sort of standard kind of protectionist grounds, but also uh, because of the serious human rights, uh, environmental, labor, etc. concerns uh, with China, which I think are fair. Uh, for the most part, uh, I think there are a lot of serious concerns about any and all of those things. So, and and like I said too, like the value of an agreement with China, you just don't really know if that's worth the paper it's written on, right? Like 
at what point are they going to decide, well, okay, this is no longer in our interest. What can we do differently? And how are we going to have any meaningful recourse to prevent that? I think is a serious question. Yeah, going going back to the conservative side, like when you look at things like the hack of the NRC, the National Research Council, and the presumption that China was involved and various other uh, sort of bad faith engagements with China on the international scene, I think Canada has a very good reason to be skeptical of engaging with China. I would agree. It's a, there's a, the upside as always is a little unclear. It's kind of nebulous and hard to model with a very tangible downside, I think is a a fair way to put it. Similarly, there was a, um, when the TPP was ongoing, I remember there were articles about the potential economic benefits that was like, you know, a couple billion over like 40 years or something stupid, where it just was like. You know, you're not talking about a transformational kind of thing. It's it's fairly restrained and it's and marginal in its impact. So I, I disagree with the analysis that you're citing a little more on the TPP, um, but this does bring me to uh, a beautiful segue. Before we get to that, we actually, oh, I my do beautiful mention, segue is ruined. Sorry, I want to mention uh, one thing that happened on the plane too on the way back, which was uh, much discussed in Canadian media circles, and that was. Um, the PM giving a off-the-record briefing to journalists. Oh, yeah. Stephen Chase tweeted about this. Indeed. Um, so basically what he said was he said the PM sort of came back to the media and media often sits together on these planes. And he said, anyone want an off-the-record briefing that you can't quote and can't talk about whatsoever? And a bunch of journalists evidently said yes. And Stephen Chase said no and opted and said to tweet about it, which I think is was broadly appreciated. We, yep. I don't think we know which journalists said yes. We do not. Um, And beyond Chase, I can't think of any uh, else who are public about their opting out. Yes. Um, But it's sort of interesting. Um, It adds context. Like, I can understand why journalists want it. Whilst they've agreed not to report on it, it adds background and can um, influence their reporting to be more accurate. Or can also influence their reporting to be more reflective of the party line. Yes, which I think is the benefit of Trudeau could be doing it just to be a nice guy, or he could be doing it as a way to spin journalists to yeah. say this wasn't a failure at all. Like, yeah, gosh, actually, it was good. Listen, it was here's, good. Here's the upside. Here's what actually. Actually, happened. when I flew to China, I intended to get nothing done. That was the plan the whole <laughs> yes. time. Uh, yeah. So sorry to ruin your segue. It's fine, it's fine. Um, I was going to raise the Como case, and uh, the segue was going to be that uh, the Como case is a case that was for the Supreme Court this week, um, and pretty widely heralded um, a lot of excitement about it, I think, in conservative circles and different industry circles, depending on which industry you work uh, for. Um, The vintners, some brewers were all very excited about it. Uh, the cannabis industry, uh, I believe Mark Emery's lawyers were interveners in the case representing cannabis culture. Guys everywhere. At the same time that their cannabis culture dispensary was getting raided literally down the street. Um, oh, did they get raided? Yeah. Still can- on Bank Street? Cannabis culture on Bank Street was raided basically simultaneous as they were uh, making their arguments in front of the Supreme Court. Which That's was kind of amusing, but nice. also sounds like... A little sketchy, but hey, carry and on. I, I don't think it was related. I don't no, think just, Mark, Mark Emery guards the door. Yeah. Like, it's an astonishing coincidence. Yes, right, carry on. just a beautiful coincidence. Um, so the Como case broadly is a case that's been working its way through the courts. It's the story of uh, the martyr of our times, um, Sir Como of New Brunswick, who um, had been sort of under RCMP, I believe it was RCMP surveillance, um, for going back and forth across the border and like liquor smuggling because he wanted to save a couple bucks on beer, and so which is basically the New Brunswick provincial sport, by the way. So he drove around to Quebec, bought a whole bunch of cheap beer, uh, and then drove it back across the border and got a three hundred dollar ticket or something like this, which was just hilarious that police surveillance is involved in giving someone a three hundred dollar ticket. It's a very good use of the time. Um, quite the sting operation. Yeah. Um, so glad, gets, glad this sick criminal is <laughs> off our streets. <laughs> he gets a ticket and he fights it on the basis of the Constitution, um, Canada's little-known Constitution. And he says that there is a line in the Constitution, I, I don't have it in front of me, that guarantees effectively, it seems to indicate, uh, guaranteed free trade amongst the provinces. And 
uh, no tariffs yes. between provinces. And we've discussed the big Canada internal trade agreement uh, in the past. I think that was one of our more fun episodes, actually. Um, but yeah, you can go back and listen to that. Uh, it's good fun. But yeah, the internal trade stuff has been a real lingering bad smell in Canada's federalism for a very long time. Yeah, so depending on who you listen to, this case has the potential to, you know, crush provincial or public monopolies uh, as we know them, you know, destroy the LCBO, completely change the cannabis industry before it even gets going, or basically literally as it gets going in Canada. Um, There's other industries that risk being affected, including supply-managed industries. They were interveners against Como. Um, the provin- the provinces, or many of the provinces, were interveners against Como, arguing that you know they need the right to provincial monopolies in order to protect their populations from the ills of you know cheap beer and things like that. So generally, not arguments I have a lot of sympathy for. Um, so I very much wish Como the best of luck. Um, depending on the analysis you read coming out of it, it seemed like the court was a little bit skeptical. Brian Platt in the National Post had a piece entitled uh, The Free the Beer Case Gets a Rough Ride from Supreme Court Justices. And it seems like they are worried um, or were worried in their questioning about, you know, the significance of a ruling yeah. know, abolishing all interprovincial and how much policy this would yeah, which I think involve is and how yeah. wide it would throw the door open. And the fact that the Supreme Court has already sort of ruled on this. There's a gold something decision from 1920s, gold seal seal decision from the 1920s, uh, which the Como uh, lawyers were arguing had sort of prohibitionist influences to it. And Mm -hmm. so that's also one of the bases for re-examining this. Yeah, I I think there's some justice to that position as much as I personally think being able to take beer over interprovincial borders is like a non-issue for me. I do think that there are, like, if you start saying, you know, we can just strike down large portions of the province's ability to regulate things within their borders, you're going to run into some problems because then where does that regulatory power then go? Because the federal government wouldn't have it because it's not really written in the Constitution that they would. And it would be a new, they would either have to expand significantly to fill that gap or that gap wouldn't get filled at all, uh, which I think is like, some people would say that's a very good thing. I f- find that a little worrying in the sense that we already have a sort of like very strong corporate sector that operates within the sort of interstitial areas of jurisdiction, uh, especially at the supranational level. But to have that come back down to the national level, I think is kind of worrying. Um, so like, you know, I, I am 100% for freeing the beer. I worry about <laughs> what other things we have to free and what the consequences of that end up being uh, in that in that world where Como wins this case. To be uh, to be a little self critical of my own party on this, there was a good interview with the conservative, I want to say trade critic whose name is eluding me right now, and it was pushing him on the um, the position of free the beer but not the milk. Um, that is was tough the to hold fine at the same time. line, yeah. the nuanced line that they were trying to walk there, saying, "Oh well, the dairy producers might have an argument, but the beer producers should be free." Um, I, I found there to be some irony there in trying yes. to protect the dairy quotas. Though, which are dairy quotas regulated federally or provincially? My sense is that it's a federal thing, so it wouldn't be at issue in this case. I believe it is an issue in this case, and I believe it is. Provincially, I am not a dairy. Okay, someone's going to yell at us I'm, about this. I'm not a dairy way. quotaologist, um, but I do know that the supply managed industries were interveners in this case because they were worried about the impact of it to affect them. Fair enough. Um, so different provincial quotas, I suspect. Yes, that would make sense. Next thing. Next up is uh, oh, I, I just wanted to riff a little bit on. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Carry on. The on, boomerang. On, on Jagmeat always comes back. Um, we haven't talked about him Not too for much. a little while, effectively since the day he got named. Uh, and I think that's because no one else has either. Um, with, I think, uh, Terry Molesky's ongoing um, fallout of his initial interview with Jagmeet Singh has gotten more media coverage than Jagmeet Singh's um, entire sort of regional tour. Uh, last I heard, he was 
under a bridge somewhere in like Windsor or something. I'm not really sure. Um, I haven't seen any headlines related to him. And so I, uh, to pick on one of my friends, I messaged him and was, was sort of being critical of Jagmeet Singh in these messages. I said like, what's this guy doing? Like, where is he? Um, what's the plan here? And he said, well, you know, he's getting good regional media coverage. And I said, I think all the regional media shut down on Monday. Like, I don't, I don't know where you're getting this coverage. <laughs> Which is in reference to uh, Tour Star and Post Media shutting down uh, over 20 region or local newspapers in uh, in Ontario. Yeah. So um, that. I mean, yeah, he, it's been fairly quiet at the federal level. Obviously, when you don't have a seat, it affects your ability to get kind of day-to-day coverage uh, from the parliamentary press gallery. I, th- I think he has gotten quite good coverage in, uh, like, regional and ethnic media, and I think he's making a bit, like, if you look at sort of the recent staffing decisions in the leader's office, they're making a big push towards outreach ethnic media, which worked really, really well for the conservatives um, in the last government. I think it's ground that the NDP has not really gone to before, and I think it'll probably help them be more competitive in different parts of the country. So that is a plus. I think, you know... Obviously, it would be great if you could do all of that and be in Ottawa at the same time. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you have to make that strategic choice. I remain on Jagmeet Watch. Fair enough. I, I look forward to seeing him in the headlines again one, one day. <laughs> just, just set up a Google alert. You'll, you'll see more <laughs> yes. that way. Um, so we have two ministers, uh, sort of on Trudeau Minister Death Watch. Um, two more that we can add to God, the list. There's, there's getting to be a number on the queue here. Honestly, they had a pretty solid first year and a half or so. Yes. And it's kind of turned into crap for the last six months. They've had some real struggles with uh, getting these folks to kind of deliver on their, uh, their I jobs. I mean, once you're out of the honeymoon period, the realities of governing and yeah. the stickiness of governing gets to basically every government. Like, very few governments are perfect, and all governments... Very sort of... few. <laughs> <laughs> Short list, yeah. Um, all governments basically sort of get into the mud at some point and get messy, and we're really starting to see that particularly... At the ministers' levels, a lot yeah. of these are like there's some problems and crises that are, are sort of erupt in government um, that aren't directly connected to ministers, and no, there's like, certainly, certainly been a few of those. But we're seeing a yeah. lot of ones that but, directly implicate ministers' behavior and ministers. Claims yeah, and it's like and very much self-started and, fires, right? Like it's not just like you get handed a crappy, just sort of act of God, and you have to deal with it. And you don't deal with it super well. These are problems that are that would be like Phoenix. Yeah. Uh, th- yeah, exactly. That's a good example. These are problems that are 100% created by the ministers. Own goals in the industry. Yes, indeed. Um, so let's go through one at a time. Uh, who's your favorite? I think uh, Kent Harris is is the goofiest, uh, okay. for sure. Do you want to explain Kent? So Kent Hare was Minister of Veterans Affairs for the first 18... The first incarnation of the Trudeau government pre-shuffle. Yeah. Uh, he was not perceived to be doing a great job there, and uh, he was shuffled downwards, though obviously there is no down anymore in uh, Sunny Ways, Canada. Uh, he was shuffled downwards to sport and disability. Correct. Um, which, I mean, you know, no offense, it's not exactly like riveting kind of business there. No, I think there are objective, like, I think there is more or less, between everyone who works in Ottawa and journalists and take your pick... There is a pretty objective structure in terms of, you know, the um, hierarchy of departments and which departments have higher influence, higher budgets, more staff, and importance is measured through all these things. There's the central agencies, there's the line agencies, and then amongst the line agencies... There's a hierarchy. You know, there's ones that do things, uh, i.e. public safety, who have the RCMP... (laughs) And uh, the, the, all these the, obviously the best department in portfolio, <laughs> well, and, right? And I'll, I'll give it fisheries and oceans, although not an area I'm passionate for. They they do things, they regulate our waterways, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are departments that are grant giving and do um, sort of so tourism, small business, and yeah, sport and disability, status of women, even of women. don't yeah. have you know an enforcement branch per se. Maybe they should. <laughs> um, Maybe they should. Things like that. Uh, but at any rate, so Kent Hare got into some hot water this week on was it two separate issues or just one? I feel like there were two. Well, there was two. The yeah. first one was thalidomide, and the second one was a mother coming out oh, about his time as uh, Veterans Affairs Minister. Right. So do you want to briefly summarize these? Um, so the thalidomide case was, to anyone not familiar with thalidomide, I encourage you to look it up. Um, 
And so uh, a couple of thalidomide survivors um, who are stakeholders of the minister and meet with him regularly, I, I presume, um, came out and said that the minister had said pretty egregious things to them. And so they sort of went public uh, to the press gallery with that. And some of the reported statements, um, he, he denied at least one of them, and he didn't deny several others. Um, so the most egregious one, the one he, um, I believe, denied was in regards to saying something along the lines of, uh, you only have a 10-year life expectancy, um, that's better, it's better for the government that way, or, or something, yeah, yeah, fairly, incredibly distasteful. Um, and then he had a couple other equally suave comments. Um, and then the next person who came out several days later was a mother of, I believe, some soldiers who had said that she was, you know, making an argument and had asked the minister about uh, ongoing litigation against veterans. And he responded with, that's a loaded question. That's like asking me if I've ever beaten my wife. Well, yeah, it was basically Or the, when's the last time you beat your wife? I think the question was something like, why are you fighting the... You know, why are you keeping to fight... Keep... Why do you keep fighting veterans in court? And then he, you responded with that. Uh, if you can't handle that level of question, like, you have no business being a minister. Yes. Like, I, it's just like, come on. So... Yeah, the, the statement he came back with is sort of used as a textbook example of what a loaded question is, but it is a horrible, horrible, ill-advised response to any stakeholder group, especially a stakeholder group in a portfolio that requires compassion and a light touch. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you tell that to, like, the telecoms lobby, I don't think people are going to bat an eye, but, like, mother of veterans is, like... Mm, yeah, maybe not. Completely different story. Yeah. Um, so, so I'd say he's been in hot water for this. Um, he hasn't had a particularly good defense. He was on a downhill slide prior to this. What's keeping him in cabinet, Laurent? Uh, the fact that he's a liberal in urban Alberta. Bing. Calgary specifically. Where, which I, is he their only seat? Or is the recently booted from caucus Darshan Kang also from Calgary? Um, I, I believe he is. He might be. Yeah, though he has recently booted from caucus and therefore no longer really a factor in cabinet considerations. Uh, again, for very uh, ill-advised reasons. Yes. Um, so there's four uh, Ontario... or uh, Alberta. Alberta. It's almost as if my home has changed. Oh. Uh, there are four Alberta Liberal MPs. Um, well, two, three now. Well, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yes, taking into account Darshan. Or there initially were four, um, two of which were put into cabinet. Yes. That is Sohi. Yeah, Amarji Sohi. He's served as a, from all accounts, fairly able and non-controversial infrastructure and communities minister. Yeah, from uh, Edmonton. Yes. And then there was... Like his Ken Alberta counterpart, also a former bus driver. Yes, he was. Yes. And then there was Kent Hare from Calgary. And so there were two sitting on the outside of cabinet, left, who were Randy Boisneau. Right, who is parliamentary secretary, I believe. Uh, yes, and special advisor on LGBT... Q2? Issues, yes. Issues. Um, so, I mean, things are looking pretty good for Randy these they days, are looking, I, I must he, say. Yeah, he also had he had a role in the uh, PM's apology to uh, LGBTQ um, sort of people that the government had wronged yeah. in uh, sort of the Cold War. So that was, you know, a good good media day for him. So I suspect we'll probably be seeing him head to cabinet sooner rather than later. I, I think that is a, a solid pick. Yes. Um, so, who's the other minister? The other minister is Diane Le Boutillier, who has one of the just hardest to say names in government, uh, which does not endear her to me. Um, she is the minister of responsible for the Canada Revenue Agency, everyone's favorite uh, department. Uh, and this is a good mix of things where that are self-inflicted, or at least kind of, and pre-existing. Uh, the Auditor General, as we mentioned the other week, had a very damning report about CRA's customer service and how they were basically just completely <laughs> juking, completely juking their stats to make them look somewhat competent. Um, and so that that's one story, bad news story for the CRA in the last couple of weeks. And the other is a sort of unannounced policy change that seems to have happened with regard to the disability tax credit. So we'd mentioned this before because it initially came out sort of in the Morneau firestorm mm -hmm. um and then it sort of faded away as his issues ramped up and now it's come back because 
ATIPs have come out. Yes. So uh, I think it's Diabetes Canada, yep. uh, as you do, submitted a bunch of access to information requests trying to get behind uh, the details behind the supposed changes to the tax credit. What do you want to bet their GR person is either a former journalist or former Hill staffer? Likely. I think very, very I, I think it's reasonable. So, I, I think any person in, or any sort of, uh, yeah, any person in this situation, if you're a stakeholder group and the government has made a uh, change that you don't like, you should probably A-tip yeah. so the justification behind it and what yeah. um, public servants have said about so it. So there's there's a hot tip for any GR professionals who have no idea what they're doing. Fair enough. There you go. <laughs> yes, fair enough. <laughs> um, so they got the access information back. Um, so that usually takes, you know, 30 to 90 days if you're if you're lucky. If you're lucky. Uh, <laughs> if, if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, so they seem to have got their A-tips back relatively quickly. And the details of it seem to have painted a slightly different picture than the government, although the government claims that there's some nuance to be found here, typical government yeah. line. So to, to reiterate exactly what these changes were, it's essentially diabetics who in the past have been able to easily access the disability tax credit uh, are being told that they can no longer access it because their, um, tre- their sort of treatments take less than 14 hours a week to deal with, which is the line that the Disability Act uh, Yeah, creates. so it's 14 hours, does that include, and what Diabetes Canada yeah. is arguing, is that includes things like calorie counting yeah. and blood testing, Yeah, and I think CRA has a vision of it more like in hospital. Yeah, and CRA has also said that it's because pumps are better now, has been their, their stated rationale, and in my mind this is basically the tax collecting agency t- making a medical decision. Uh, which it really has no place doing, frankly. Like, that is just simply not their place. If you have a doctor that will attest to your uh, spending 14 hours a week, then that should be the case. That which should be open and shut. Yeah, which was happening, yeah. and the CRA was basically, like, declining doctor's notices. Yeah, stating which is, as much. that's, like, just honestly, like, completely beyond what the kind of decision CRA should be making. I suspect there are a lot of people, tax collectors at CRA, who have medical degrees from ITD Technical <laughs> Institute, to match my trade yeah. degree. Um, so, I mean, this is another, like, how much of it actually sticks to Le Boutier? Yeah. I don't know if it's that yeah. much. She looks, she looks bad because been a whole... the ATIP seemed to contradict her pretty directly. Yeah. She's trying to paint a finer line. Because she's basically saying um, she never saw this decision or heard about it, whereas... That does not really seem to be the case. I so. no. I tend to. I tend to support her there. You think she she never had to prove it? Yeah, because I think I would a tip all correspondence between the minister's office and the department um, related to this tax change. And if like, and if there's none or little, it, it seems to be an interpretive decision, which can be made at On a the relatively other hand, low though, level. Any advice would be redacted. So any advice or decision. Like I, I think it's pr- like pretty yeah, likely that this that, stuff wouldn't come up in ATIPS. Mm, I, I mean, having I, having gone through a lot of ATIPS recently about sort of these issues, so you have to the, the advice itself might be redacted, yeah. but you could probably get a good sense of whether or not there was information being sent to the minister's office on this topic. It really depends. It really depends. I um, think that would be reasonable, but I also often interpretation decisions are made at a fairly low level. Well, yeah, it could be just a regulatory interpretation decision, in which case then, yeah, the minister would never have seen it. Yeah. So that's entirely possible. So but, yeah. between those two things and the minister's statement yeah. saying, you know, th- I never saw this, I, I don't hand, see any reason to blatantly yeah. lie on such a on black the, and white thing. On the other hand, though, she has stuck her neck out for her department on this. And she's the one who gave the better insulin pumps response and is seems to be taking the department's line on it. So it was, and then she kicked back at the department, at least in one of the statements initially, and we, we discussed that previously. Yeah. But this often happens in ministers' offices where the political staff are not very, I'll, I'll say, independent or confident, mm-hmm. where they don't they can't stand on their own legs and take a position apart from their department, which often... Um, political staff have to do. Yeah. Um, so when you're in one of these departments, CRA is not a high-profile department. Um, it's not a very sexy department. Um, and so the staff that work there likely don't deal with many issues. It's pretty quiet most of the time. So when you find yourself a staffer with you know a year and a half of political experience, maybe two years, and you're suddenly on the front page of the Globe and Mail, 
you'll tend to sort of fall back on your Play department's advice because they're experts. They know what they're rather about. than push back against them and take take the slightly necessarily riskier, but the let's say ballsier approach. Yeah, um, which is putting light between you and your department. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I think it's an interesting one just to see um, what Laboutier's responses are and sort of how you interpret her response relative to what her department would be telling her to say. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think is going to happen with her? I don't, I don't think it's significant enough. It's not necessarily related to her personally or any of her decisions. Um, so I, I think she yeah. coasts through it. Uh, she's a Quebec minister in the Liberal government. She's yeah. not a shining star. She's not... Yeah, I think it's a strike one, you know? Yeah. It's a strike one. Because I, unlike, uh, you know, an Alberta liberal, she's very easily replaceable. She, she is very easily replaceable, but, I mean, you get to the end of your four-year mandate, and then you put new people in cabinet, and I think she's likely someone that you just roll over and yeah. swap out because... They're sort of neutral tone. Assuming no further major issues. Yeah, yeah, you swap out, but that's sort of a default swap that would have happened despite this issue. Indeed. So um, so that takes us to, I think, will be a, a fun story for, for this week. A uh, fun story. Yes. Uh, so last week, uh, the reason we didn't cover this last week is just because the situation was evolving, sort of as uh, as we were, we were talking. So... Um, RealAccountability.ca was a short-lived website that sort of uh, called for the firing of Bill Morneau and real accountability from the government. Sounds awesome. It, it sounded great. Yeah, the one irony to this was that um, this nonpartisan, not affiliated with, with any gr- outside group, independent, um, the people in charge of it, or who are its sort of listed founders, were two cartoon people who listed <laughs> only their first names. <laughs> And sort of read almost word for word as like conservative uh, demographic profile targeting copy. Uh, one of them was, for instance, a, a dad from uh, from Vancouver and a mom from Milton who uh, you know loves fiscal responsibility and Tim Hortons that that sort of thing. <laughs> and, and I'm not exaggerating by a lot, really. Like I think I, I'm I'm upping the sort of like Stephen Harper Tim Hortons adness of it a little bit, but really not in a significant way. Um, Aaron Wary asked like the mildest question possible about this like hey who's actually like responsible for this website and basically it folded like a day later just completely disappeared from the internet um, what was really amusing about this in my mind was that it had a donate page um, so this real accountability movement uh, led by two obviously fictional people with cartoon profile pictures um, headshots I suppose uh, were Asking for donations with, like, absolutely no accountability as to where that was going or for what. Which I found very, very amusing. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious that... So, you did donate then. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, I I believe in accountability again. (laughs) exactly. Who doesn't? Um, Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so... This completely bizarre stunt, I think it's pretty fair to say, likely came out of someone connected to the Conservative Party. Uh, It's impossible to say who, but... um, so you, you seem to you, you seem to be hesitating here. I, I'm I am just a little more hesitant about making an actual story about this. Um, there were no actual stories published about this, as as far as I know. Aaron Wary didn't write the piece of like suspected third party advertiser folds in forty eight hours. Maybe he should have. Um, I just think it is such a small blip on the radar to be nearly inconsequential. I just thought it was so funny. Like, it's more it's more just the humorousness and irony of it, that it was just this, like, clearly fake thing called real accountability with clearly fake people soliciting donations. <laughs> um, it was really, really funny. And I think, like, it's a sign of the tendency of conservatives to get a little overreachy in some of their, their stories. Uh, as, as all opposition parties do. If I'm not mistaken, one of the profiles said they had voted liberal last election. Yeah, but was dis- disappointed. Was disappointed. Yes. Maybe disappointed. maybe they're on team uh, team Jack Mead and Greet. Maybe. maybe. I think it's a little hard to, to believe, but uh, very possible. You wanted to use the back end of the show to talk about letters to MPs. Yeah, despite some uh, some people's concerns that this might be a boring topic, I uh, I persevered and insist that it's actually fairly interesting um, because letters to MPs are sort of the 
mechanical like base unit of how government works in day to day as as any hill staff or ministerial staffer can attest um or in fact uh, a lot of uh, officials in their departments a lot of people send letters in send emails send faxes yeah um never send a fax you can never read them um and they eventually in i'd say most cases get responses from their mps so it's sort of to talk about the importance of level, uh, letters and what role they play in government and government decision making and influence and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, where do you want to start? You want to start in the MP's office talking about how letters work, or do you want to start in the minister's office? Yeah, let's talk about MP's offices. Um, there's kind of a wide variety of how stringent people are about responding to letters on the Hill. Uh, some MPs see it as a kind of a like you know, only if necessary or if it's significant and really requires a response. Often you'll just get correspondence that doesn't really ask you something or ask you for something. It's just like, hey, good job, in which case that doesn't always need a response. Others will, you know, every have a, have a principle that every piece of mail that comes into their box needs a response. Uh, that's a little crazy in my view. I, I don't think every response does, especially since the bulk of it, honestly, often is stuff from various organizations that are national in nature that are hey come to our you know wine and cheese night or whatever um, and you know perhaps you don't need to send a letter saying no thanks to every single one of those but some people uh, operate by that philosophy um in terms of hill offices obviously there's kind of a gulf between what the constituency sees and what the the, the hill sees um so constituency offices, I think, often do need more of a personal touch because people are going there often with the idea of getting help with an issue concretely, whereas often the Hill office will be a place they'll send a letter containing their, their manifesto uh, on various issues that they'll send off uh, in hopes that the MP will be converted to their niche I, I have received many a manifesto in my time. Indeed. you want to talk a little bit about how it works uh, for ministers? Um, yeah. The, the parting comment I would make there... Um in terms of analysis from what you said, is it's important to note sort of the range depends on... So your service level as a constituent from your MP depends on basically the personality and directives of your MP. Yeah. Um, There are stories of MPs who do virtually no correspondence, and there are stories of MPs who thrive on correspondence. And so it creates this sort of... Yeah. Um, unequal system where not everyone gets the same access to their government services necessarily. And that sort of rolls into constituency office work and all all the way down the food chain of services provided by an MP's office. There's a really good, I'm sure I've mentioned this on the show before, but uh, Robert Caro's books on Lyndon Johnson are very, very, very good. Um, But there is one where, uh, that discusses Lyndon Johnson when he went to work as a congressional Hill staffer. He basically sat in that office and did correspondence for like 19 hours a day. Uh, The only thing he was doing was just correspondence, correspondence, correspondence. Um, and it, it worked for him. Uh, his, it made his boss very popular. There you go. Um, and, you know, people... Obviously, this is, you know, better part of a century ago in a different country, but it goes to show that people do like getting letters from their MP. It really makes a big difference to them, and if Lyndon Johnson saw it as worth doing to sort of advance your, your own political career, uh, perhaps it is. So, uh, I've never dealt personally with uh, MPs... Uh, letters or correspondence. I, I instead did uh, ministerial correspondence, which is a bit of a different beast. Indeed. Um, because people there are responding to you for very specific issues, as well as you have... Fewer manifestos, more. Like. Oh, you can imagine at public safety we get quite a few <laughs> yeah, manifestos. That's fair. that's fair. Let me tell you, I'm quite well acquainted with the admiralty courts of the free men on the land <laughs> and the, you know... 45-page nonsensical documents that they would often send us. Um, But I I was going to say, you have the department helping you. So instead of having one or two political staff who coordinate and meticulously catalog these emails, you instead have a bureaucracy um, and what's termed the MCU, which is Ministerial Correspondence Unit. And so you fire all your things. You basically get that actually all... sounds more fun than the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Thing, <laughs> to be honest with you, I hate those movies. I love them. Um, I'm in the midst of uh, just finishing the Punisher season one right now. Actually, oh, good for you. Um, so you take the letters, you send them down to the department. The department sort of triages them, um, and they'll split them up into three categories: the VVIP, the VIP, and the general. 
Um, the VVIP is like premiers and ministerial counterparts or really important stakeholders pressing issues. Yeah. And each of these levels has like a service standard associated with them. I, I don't I don't remember exactly what they are. Um, but the VVIP is like really as as quick, yeah, yeah, like 24, 48 hours a week at most sort of thing. Um, and then the blue level dockets, the VIP dockets are from MPs. Often they're MPs forwarding along letters from their constituents to the yeah. minister and asking to be CC'd in response. So there's a, a large forwarding function if you don't send the minister directly. But what's important to note here is instead of sending it directly to... Um, the minister. If you send it through an MP, it's placed in the blue docket instead of the green docket, which gets a faster service standard, often by a magnitude of two to three times faster. Um, so it is perhaps a worthwhile process if you have a useful MP to have your letter forwarded to the minister by the MP. Yeah, it, it provides a little more, you know, concrete push to it. Through that, the is, department. that is a very common ask. Um, so I, I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to do. No. And the last one is the, the green docket, which is the general correspondence docket, which is just, you know, people sending them in. And so the process uh, then in the department, they triage it out. And the departments actually often get sent to the people who work in the policy areas that are covered in the um, question, depending on what they ask. Even MPs, you'll often get responses from policy advisors or the like if you forwarded something on. Yeah. Or even if you've sent them a letter. Yeah. Yeah. Because, so, say you, let, let's say, let's use beer as an example here because it's very easy. Say you send a question about beer tariffs. Uh, that would get tasked out in the department to the team that deals with beer tariffs. And maybe they've dealt with similar questions before and they'll throw together a template letter or maybe not a template letter if it's a very unique question. And generally they respond to you in uncontroversial terms. Unless you have a specific case or something like that. If you have a case and it's like an immigration thing, you'll get a response very specific to your yeah. file effectively. Um, but if it's just a general policy question that gets sent back up to the department, um, it generally goes from the MCU and the policy person back to the minister's office. Minister's office gets to review the letter. Um, they can edit, amend the language as they see fit. Generally, letters to constituents aren't made partisan. They're kept pretty neutral language. Mm -hmm. um, minister's offices will sometimes add critiques of their own departments that the department doesn't like writing. Um, but because the letter is coming from the voice of the minister, they can, you know, if the letter is about something the RCMP legitimately did wrong or any other, you know, department or uh, division of government, then the minister can write perhaps a Fisheries more... Fisheries and Oceans Enforcement Branch. Yeah, take, yeah, like take your pick. Sometimes the minister will write back a response and this will be written by the department and it'll be a little sharper than the standard departmental language. Mm -hmm. And then the department generally complies with that request and sort of generally writes it uh, writes it angrily, but because the minister's or the minister's signature is placed at the bottom of the letter, uh, be it digital or hand done, um, it's up to them to write whatever they want. They they get final say over the letters that go out. Yeah. And so often uh, ministers will take home correspondence at night uh, along with their general policy files and they'll flip through letters mm -hmm. and sign, you know, a couple dozen a night. And that's how they do it. Some ministers sign none of them personally and just get them all auto-penned, which is like digitally signed by a little robotic arm. Um, different ministers have different styles of doing things. Um, I have some good stories when I was doing correspondence from uh, the minister's office. I have, I have two that really stand out in my mind. Um, the first was just funny. Um, it was a letter... Uh, and it had a hierarchy, the lizard hierarchy. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Uh, of, sure. the, of the government. Yeah. Who do you think the, uh, I think it was King Lizard. Who do you think the King Lizard was well, of the conservative government? Was it, I mean, I'm guessing it can't be Stephen Harper. In this it, it wasn't Stephen Harper. Okay. Uh, hmm. That's a tough one. Uh, when was the letter written? Uh, a couple of years ago. Baird, maybe? Baird was not the King Lizard. Oh, okay. Who is the King Lizard? Preston Manning was King Lizard. I could see that. Okay. Uh, I think Stephen Harper and Peter McKay were the general lizards. Okay, fair, yeah. And then there were a line of deputy lizards that included some of the more pro prominent So Baird ministers. would have been like a deputy lizard. I think Baird would have fallen into the deputy lizard okay. category. That was, that was quite a treat to receive. Um, I also once received a envelope with pills in it. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Right, you mentioned this before, I think. Uh, not ne no, not never, on the show. Never, just to never me, on the right. podcast. And yeah. this one was sort of interesting. So it was like a blister pack of pills, and I looked up the pills, and it was antipsychotic medications, as you might uh, expect. 
And so... Uh, might you? <laughs> as you? As you might expect. And so I was like, all right, well, I don't really know what to do here. I will pass it on to the department. So I went and I put it in sort of the outbox um, at the office, and I drafted up an email simultaneously to say uh, to the lady I was working with in the MCU, being like, there will be pills in the <laughs> in the letterbox. Sorry about that. I don't know <laughs> what to do with them. Do what you normally would if you regularly receive pills. And then I asked her a couple weeks uh, later what she'd uh, what she'd done with them, and she said she sent them back with a letter saying, "I don't know if you inadvertently sent us your pills, but here they are, and they didn't get resent to us." So oh, well. I, you know I. I'm always accidentally mailing stuff to ministers, like my keys, wallet, just like, you know, I'll just be patting my coat pockets like, oh, where did I put this? And I remember, sent it to a minister. A couple, <laughs> that'll happen. A couple of years all the time, ago, all the time. Um, just as the liberals got into power, I believe, there was a guy in BC who sent all the um, MPs offices a couple grams of weed oh, each, yeah. a couple grams of cannabis. And so that was quite the event on the hill. I bet. Where <laughs> I, I think the the joke would be to send your. That would uh, have been very expensive. Uh, about ten. I mean, if you grow it yourself, then yeah, you're you're not paying. But, like, that's you're like, not paying market costs. It's true, but like that's a lot of weed. Political protest. I mean, a gram of weed is about MP, is though? under ten bucks. So a gram of weed. But to every MP, uh, to three hundred thirty eight MPs. That's. Four thousand dollar political protest. Yeah, I mean, that's like you send pricey. you send your gram of weed and you make you know you get your vice article about yourself, or you set up a real accountability website. Oh, and uh, yeah. yeah, so everyone was sort of competing to go get the mail that day. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so I heard. I'm sure there were a couple offices that didn't get their uh, gram of weed, and you know, it just never never showed up. Never showed up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, mail whilst. Um, you know, perhaps one of the more boring topics. It, it is actually fairly interesting, and it's often how, uh, I mean, it's one of the only mechanisms through which, you know, average people communicate directly with ministers of the government. And yeah. often uh, ministers will take the time to read the letter, uh, put smiley faces on it, or what that have you. That sounds very much like a, <laughs> like something your boss would have done. <gasps> All sorts of things. Um, but nice personal touches are uh, always... People appreciate them. Always appreciated. Yeah. So that'll do it for us today. Uh, thanks so much for listening, as always. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, at ShortPantsPod. Uh, you can also... That's, that's actually pretty, pretty well it these days, isn't it? Uh, I mean, you can check out our, our Tumblr page. We don't at, have uh, you, you didn't set up the Tumblr I page. I didn't set up the Tumblr, no. Damn. Sorry. One, one of these days. Yeah. And maybe, maybe one day soon we'll have a website. Yeah, we're kind of thinking about that. Anyway, uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, we will see you either next week or more likely after the holidays. Take her easy. Bye, folks. <laughs> Take your coins. <laughs> it's all coin grappling. <laughs> <laughs>